This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, we feature three stories found in the Second Story Anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck. Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck is a comprehensive collection of our favorite stories from our first 10 years of performance in Chicago. Featuring 23 stories by 23 authors, this anthology features some of the earliest work produced by Second Story, as well as pieces from earlier in 2012. In this podcast, we bring you audio performances of three of the stories featured in Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck, as well as exclusive audio interviews with the main editors of the anthology and the authors themselves. We met with the two editors of this anthology on the day of its release. We were we we edited edited did it we edited the book together. We served as co-editors. Megan was the muscle, and I was the uh, the other muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I am Andrew Riley. I am the director of publishing here at Second Story. I'm Megan Steelstra. I'm the literary director. We were the editors. I was the one who said, "Oh, look at the humanity," and Andrew said. Look at this semicolon. This book is an awesome Christmas present for your mother and all of her friends. This book is fun. This book is interesting. This book is challenging. I think there are a lot of stories in there that, that make you look at yourself in, in different ways. Our first story today comes from Sarah Karastis. Sarah has been involved with Second Story for almost four years. She also serves as the Education Programs Director at the About Face Theater Company in Chicago. And I have never been a 17-year-old girl, but I think of uh, Sarah Karastas and her story about being a you know, kind of semi-confused you know, teenage girl. And reading her story, you know, it's like I, I've, I've been there. I've been, and there's a lot of that in this book that... We're all in this together. You know, we're all at our core. We're all up against the same things, and we all want the same things. And one of the things I hope this book does is kind of shine a light on that that idea. From Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck, this is Sarah Karastis reading her story titled Xena, Cardboard Princess. The first time I saw it, my face froze just inches from the screen. I'd bent over to turn on the cable box in my parents' TV room, and when I rose, there it was. This slow crane shot descending on two sleeping women in the forest. One of them was a brunette tiger of a woman wearing a leather bodice, and the other was a tiny blonde in a tunic. And they were spooning on a bearskin rug. Cut. The closing credits appeared on the screen for Xena Warrior Princess, and my 17-year-old ass was still bent over and stoned from the contact high of what I'd just seen. In my chest was something I'd felt only like three times before. The three times my friend Lisa had friend-kissed me on the cheek. After school that one time, smoking pot in her Toyota RAV4, and once when we drank too much of her mom's Kahlua and she put me to bed on her couch. (sighs) Lisa. Lisa listened to Tori Amos on vinyl. I, uh, I did almost anything she said. I glanced up quickly and looked around, then noted the details. 11 a.m., Saturday morning, WGN Channel 9. This was in the north suburbs of Chicago, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I'd just been fired from the Love's Yogurt on Skokie Boulevard. Yeah. 
The next Saturday at 11 a.m., I sat on the couch gripping the remote while keeping an eye on the entrance to the room. Over the next hour, I discovered that Xena Warrior Princess was just as I had suspected. A sloppy mix of grade school renaissance fair and lifetime made-for-TV movie. But there was a scene. This time in the middle of the episode, where Xena and her blonde sidekick, Gabrielle, were riding bareback through the forest on a horse. Uh, the week after that, Xena had to suck the poison out of an arrow wound on Gabrielle's chest. And uh, the week after that, my sister Jenny walked in midway through the episode. Ew, are you watching Xena Warrior Princess? No, I'm uh, just flipping through the channel surfing. Thank God my thumb had hit the back button and saved me. Animal Planet now appeared on the screen. Okay, she drew out the word suspiciously. Can I watch with you? Nah, I'd uh, rather be alone, I sputtered with forced indifference. Jenny looked at me crooked like a puppy hearing a foreign noise. She knew something was up. Jenny is three years younger than me, and we've always been similar. Same zodiac sign, same walk, same affinity for roughhousing. Our older brother was always telling me to stop telling Jenny what to do, but I didn't, I swear. She just copied me. Uh, why can't I watch TV with you? I just want to watch alone, okay? The tension was getting to me. Every second that Jenny stood there was another second of missed Xena. Sarah, come on, just let me watch Animal Planet. I'm not watching Animal Planet! I told you, I'm flipping through the channels, okay? Can't I just do that alone? God! Jenny looked at me for a beat, let out an angry breath, and plopped herself down on the opposite end of the L-shaped couch. I stared at her in disbelief. She stared at the TV. We were both wearing baggy pants, but mine were vintage sailor jeans, and hers were Adidas warm-ups from soccer practice. Sometimes her ability to fit in really pissed me off. The slow British wildlife narration slid through the air, accentuating every second. Maybe Xena and Gabrielle were taking a dip in a pond together right about now. Maybe they were hand-feeding each other venison and mead at a local inn. Maybe... They were traveling through a dream world after Gabrielle's evil daughter killed Xena's centaur son and they were belting their emotions into each other's eyes through song. I threw the remote control on the carpet and stormed out of the room. Later that week, I was sitting in the kitchen by the family computer, this old gateway PC with dial-up internet, and Lisa and I were talking on the phone. Lisa. Lisa had one of those Winona Ryder pixie cuts that changed colors every couple weeks. She also stuck a big orchid in the side of her hair, the perfect blend of sophistication and punk. Sarah, you're coming over to my place, she demanded in that alpha hot girl kind of way. Come on, I want to hang out. We can, like, watch a movie or something and drink my mom's Kahlua. <laughs> uh, we did that a lot. Oh, Yeah. I said, trying to sound sharp and cool like her. That was something I had noticed recently. When I was around Lisa, I would start talking like her. Yeah, Aaron's going to come over too. Ugh, okay. Lisa had just started hooking up with this guy, Aaron, who was like 20 years old with white people dreads. Yeah. To me, he was a walking, talking, hemp pants wearing cock block, but Lisa loved him. Suddenly hanging out with her meant hanging out with him too. Oh, God, I mean, I totally want to hang out with you and Aaron, but, uh, I'm busy tonight. Yeah, I'm hanging out with some people or whatever. 
After we hung up, I sat there staring at the computer blankly. I noticed that the Netscape Navigator search bar was open. I typed in Xena Warrior Princess, and five zillion Xena sites popped up. Immediately, I opened another window, a non-Xena one, so if anyone walked by, I'd have a cover-up just to click away. And then, click. The official Xena Warrior Princess website. Click. Maria's Xena fan page. Click. Xena and Gabrielle Forever Lovers Eternal.org? <laughs> it was like giving a kid chocolate for the first time. I couldn't get enough. Okay, on the TV show, Xena and Gabrielle were more than just friends. They were soulmates. On the internet, I discovered that Xena and Gabrielle were more than just soulmates. They had raunchy warrior sex together. They were corporate bigwigs in modern-day Miami. They headlined any fantasy that any sapphic superfan could dream up. Okay, most of the fan fiction followed a similar story pattern. The Xena and Gabrielle-type characters meet. They fall for one another, but don't express their feelings. They hold back until they can't restrain themselves anymore. They profess their love for one another. They have raunchy warrior sex. And from this point on... They never hold back. Late at night, when I was sure no one was around, I would descend into the kitchen, dial up, and stay on those websites until like three or four in the morning. The computer screen was often the last light on in the house, its neon blue glow illuminating my face while darkness cloaked me from behind. It was around this time when I noticed that Jenny had started watching the show. I walked into the front TV room one Saturday morning and, oh, hey, Jenny, I need to watch something. What are you watching right now? Xena. What? Xena Warrior Princess? I don't know. It's a good show. What? <laughs> no, it's not. It was a knee-jerk reaction. I had to protect myself. Shut up. I like it. Uh, <laughs> that show is a total piece of shit. I can't believe you're actually watching it. Like, seriously. Shut up, I just like it. I think it's good. Her eyes returned to the screen and stayed there. I let out a couple shocked guffaws, but she didn't budge. There was something immediately threatening about the whole thing. Like, if Jenny watched the show, she would see the lesbian subtext, especially in seasons three and four. I mean, come on! And then she would know while I was watching the show. Okay, it wasn't a fear of coming out. I wasn't there yet. It was something deeper. I mean, back then... At 17, I was overweight, I was kind of a loner, and that had taken a toll. Someone like me was just not supposed to be sexual. Much less sappy lesbian warrior sexual. Who did I think I was? People would make fun of that, and that was something I was not going to risk. I started turning the whole thing into a big joke, and I was relentless. Hey, Jenny, maybe you should go check if Xena's on. Shut up. Hey, Jenny, I bet they make Dungeons & Dragons cards with Xena on them. Shut up! Hey, Jenny, I just saw this gross 40-year-old guy with a mullet wearing a Xena t-shirt. Shut up, Sarah! When Jenny went to camp in Wisconsin for two weeks, I thought it would be funny to buy a life-size Xena Warrior Princess cardboard cutout for her return. The cardboard Xena stood over six feet tall in this intimidating yet sexy pose, carrying her chakram in one hand and a sword in the other. 
I propped her up next to me as my mom and I waited in this parking lot for Jenny's camp bus to arrive. My mom had watched me fold Zena into the car, obscuring the rearview mirror, but she hadn't really picked up on what was going on. Are you sure Jenny's going to like this, Sarah? When the bus finally rolled in, Jenny was one of the first to come bounding out of it. I could barely suppress my giggle when I saw her scan the parking lot and spot us about 50 feet to the left. A look of pure fear took over her face. Welcome back, Jenny! We yelled. Oh my god. Oh my god. No, what is this? We got you, Zena! She's super excited to see you! I gloated, suddenly feeling a weird mixture of uncomfortable feelings as her tears of embarrassment welled. I can't believe you fucking did this, Sarah. Jenny dropped her pack, hurried into the car, and slammed the door. My mom stood in the background as her confused arms sank to her sides. I really hadn't anticipated her being this upset about the Xena thing. I mean, why was she so embarrassed? At home, my mom told me to put Zena away. So I carried her upstairs to the attic and awkwardly ran into Jenny on my way. Sorry, I said. I thought you'd think it was funny. But she just barreled past, her shoulders knocking Zena and me into the railing. I reset my grip, continued up the stairs, and slid Zena behind a dresser in the attic. Which was perhaps not the most thought-out storage spot, because a week later, Lisa spotted it. Whoa. What the fuck is that? She blurted out of nowhere. We had been in the attic smoking cigarettes out the window, so my parents wouldn't smell. (laughs) Aaron was on tour with his band that week, so suddenly we were hanging out one-on-one again. Lisa was straddling the windowsill. With her vintage green dress draped over the edge, she looked like one of those French cigarette ads from the 1940s. I wanted to tell her I'd missed her, but I never said that shit out loud. There was a moment of silence, and I realized she was waiting for my response. I quickly followed her eyes to see Zena's intimidating yet sexy smirk peeking out from behind the dresser. Shit. Oh, ha, that's just a Zena cardboard cutout my sister got, I said nervously. Okay, I knew Lisa didn't know about my Xena stuff. There was no way she could, but these very separate worlds were too close to each other, and my hands started to sweat. Oh. My. God. This is a joke. Lisa flicked her cig away, then pulled Xena out from behind the dresser. Sarah! We have to do something with her. We have to, like, take her out somewhere. Wait, what? I rattled my brain for any available excuse. Uh, I don't know. It's my sister's. I don't think she'll want... Come on. She won't even know. We'll take her to Dominic's or Dunkin' Donuts or something, and we'll bring her right back, I promise. It'll be so fucking funny. So, we drove around Evanston, Illinois, in Lisa's Toyota RAV4 with Zena sitting in the back seat. We pulled into an empty Dominic's parking lot, hotboxed the RAV4, and blew smoke in Zena's face. Hotboxing, for the record, 
is when you're in a small space, usually a bathroom or a car, and you seal all the openings. Windows, doors, cracks underneath the doors. Then you smoke pot. If you're in a bathroom, you turn on the shower to get some steam going. The idea here is that you create a space with as little fresh air as possible so that the THC is recycled over and over and over again. One person's exhale is another person's inhale. It's one of those stupid things you do when you're 17 on a Friday night and have nothing to do. And it gets you extremely high. When we finally opened the doors to the RAV4, I imagined large gusts of pot smoke flying past my ears and floating into the night sky. It was a summer night montage, parading ourselves into Dominic's, passing Xena back and forth like a flag. The store was empty at 10 p.m. on a Friday, and the momentum carried Lisa and me in different directions. I was standing alone, mesmerized by this rainbow wall of chips, when I sensed someone else was there, behind me. I glanced to my right and saw Zena's head peeking out from the end of the aisle. Then, like some sort of battle charge, Zena started coming at me full force. She was getting closer and closer, tilting to the left, then to the right, faster and faster, but never changing her expression. I could barely react before she smashed right into me, the cardboard bending over my head as I crumpled to the floor. (laughs) Oh my god, Sarah, you should have seen your face! Lisa spat out between gasps for air. I could feel her spasms of laughter through the cardboard. Zena's head was bent over my right shoulder, Lisa's over my left. These two worlds collided. This was the closest I'd ever been to Lisa, and this moment was everything. No holding back of anything, just long enough for me to feel connected. And then it was over. Oh, shit, Lisa laughed. Your sister's gonna be so pissed. She rolled off of me and held up a portion of Zena's disembodied shoulder in front of my face. Oh, uh, no, that's okay. I don't even think Jenny... I trailed off. Zena's chakram was missing, her neck torn at an unnatural angle, and there were scuffs everywhere. I looked up at Lisa, searching for anything to indicate that she just felt something, too. Whatever. We lifted Zena and carried her outside like some sort of funeral procession. The tiny rectangular opening of the Dominic's garbage bin wouldn't accept even one of her gargantuan thighs, so we ripped her up. First at the knees, then at the waist, then the neck. Getting back into Lisa's car, the stale smell of smoked weed awaited us. Lisa got a call from Aaron and she put the car phone on speaker. On the way home, I wanted Lisa to drive faster. It was hard to tune out their conversation, so I stared out the open window trying to disconnect, trying to cut off everything in the car. I peered out into the deep darkness, and I wondered if this was all there was. That was Sarah Carastas. 
I met with Sarah in a busy Logan Square coffee shop to discuss the theatrical nature of Second Story and adapting her work back to the page. But for me, the impetus of the story was the image of like cardboard Xena running at me at full force and just being like, you know, having like all of these emotions at once. And it's also just like such a theatrical moment. You know, it's like something... Converting stories like Sarah's for a reading audience became a unique experience for each author and for our editors. Yeah, in, with, with, my perstor- with my stories, like, the performances, like, explains a lot. So a lot of the writing had to do with explaining how the dialogue was or how what, what I was communicating non-verbally I had to then put on paper. So This is a great example of how, of how a dynamic performance, it can say a million things without having to say them. So, so the challenge with, with that one being, um, you know, being so rooted in the performance side of it was, okay, what, what, what's actually being said here? What are, we, what are we looking for? What are the gaps to fill in? And then going back to, are you getting at this or this? And if it's this, then we're going to need a scene here, or we're going to need mm-hmm. just a kind of a little transition here, or we can, we can do a hard stop and whatever but what are you really after so then that's where you study the the tools of literary craft and and yeah line bricks play a part of it the use of m dashes the use of italics the use of repetition uh pacing um yeah and to some extent i mean the that's the performance of a written text it's the mm-hmm. theatrics of the written word and it seems like such a like kind of silly innocuous thing to be talking about stops and space breaks <laughs> and periods yeah and pauses, but it, what happens in a pause, what happens in a moment can change the whole world. So, yeah. Our next story from Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck comes from Julia Borschitz. Julia is a Second Story company member and has been writing with Second Story for over five years. Reading her story titled Running on Empty, this is Julia Borschitz. The minute I pushed open the glass door of that ghetto gas station, baby on my hip, I realized that the clerk had been shot. He wasn't behind the counter on the left. No, he was splayed across the back wall as though he'd tried to make a break for it, blood pooling through the two holes under the patch that said Kevin on his blue uniform shirt. One mangled and bloody hand stretched out in front of him as though he'd been pleading for mercy or trying to block the final shot that pierced the front of his skull and blew out the back of his head. Bits of his long, light brown hair hung from the chunks of blood and bone smeared along the wall where he'd hit and then slid down. He'd been a tall man, I noticed, because his legs, positioned awkwardly akimbo in ways that would have been too painful to maintain if he'd been alive, had knocked over a display of motor oil three feet to the right. He was a young man, too, I realized, probably younger than I was then, which was twenty-three. I froze in the doorway, ten dollars clutched in my hand, until my daughter wiggled on my hip. Bottle, she demanded, punching me on the shoulder. That, not Mama, had been her first word, and she used it often. It was 8 p.m., and she should have eaten an hour ago, but we'd run out of gas and had to trudge through a blizzard in this bombed-out stretch of neighborhood on the west side of Rockford, Illinois. Be bop, be quiet, we'll be home soon, I lied, sliding my own back away from the glass front of the building and across to a rack of road maps. I didn't know whether to bend down and try to get a pulse or to go back out into the dark, and I kept asking myself, what would my mother do? But she was way too competent for something like this to happen to, and this was exactly the kind of situation that made her judge me as inept. 
There was a payphone across the lot, but I hadn't seen or heard anyone screeching out into the street, and I'd been staring at the gas station for half a mile as we walked down Auburn Street, willing it not to close before we got there. This meant, to me, that the perpetrator could still be skulking around the building, and if I tried to use the phone, my back would be exposed. There'd been a series of killings that week, and I knew as soon as I saw this gas station clerk slumped on the floor that I'd walked into another one by the same guy. The day before, an attendant at the Sitco gas station up the street had been murdered, and the day before that, two clerks at Willie Fred's corner grocery store had each been shot in the head five times. Later that week, two shoppers would be gunned down at a radio shack in Beloit, Wisconsin. By the next week, we would learn that the killer's name was Ray Lee Stewart. His own father would turn him in for the reward money, Stewart would get the death penalty, and in 1996, he would be executed. But that night, in January of 1981, I didn't know any of this. All I knew was that I was trapped in a gas station with a dead body and a nine-month-old baby. I shivered as she squirmed in my arms. She reached over my shoulder with her fat little hand, and I felt the wisps of her hair, light brown and fine like those on the dead man, brush against my cheek as she grabbed a road map and threw it across the room, where it hit the open cash register. The window rattled as the freezing rain hit the glass, and I realized that I could stay in there all night, but aside from the weather, we weren't any safer inside than we were out in the parking lot, and that sooner or later someone would show up, and at this point, I'd rather it was the police. So I pulled Bebop around to the front of my chest, pushed the door open, and staggered back out into the snow. So, you might be asking, what the hell kind of mother takes her kid out in a blizzard during a killing spree, in a car with no gas, and doesn't even bring a bottle? The easy answer is that my husband and I had separated a week earlier, and I was exhausted from shuttling my kid between babysitters while I worked two jobs. I was taking my work clothes and a load of shitty diapers to the laundromat, and I had no idea how I was going to make the house payment, let alone fix the broken gas gauge on the car. But the true answer is that I really wasn't ready to be a mother. I was 21 when I discovered I was four months pregnant, and while that may not seem criminally young, it had taken me four months to discover this because my husband, Greg, a lazy but patient roofer with spiky dark hair who moonlighted as a drug mule for the Hells Angels, was bringing home so much speed that I hadn't got my periods for almost a year. I'd stopped speaking to my mother after I overheard her telling Greg to keep an eye on me because I wasn't dumb exactly. I just had no common sense. But it was too late for a legal abortion, and even as self-absorbed as I was, it occurred to me that there was no good reason for a married couple, even Greg and me, to give up their kid for adoption. To my credit, I did give up drinking and drugs and signed up for Lamaze classes as soon as I got the news. But I spent most of the pregnancy smearing my belly with cocoa butter and examining my hips for stretch marks. All I cared about was when I could start drinking again and how I was going to get my figure back. Greg responded to my badgering about how we were going to afford this baby by picking up additional roofing jobs in southern Illinois where it was warmer, making additional runs for the Hells Angels, and smoking a lot of weed. But since he was now gone approximately all the time, and I was stone-cold sober and getting fatter by the minute, we did nothing but fight. By the time I was seven months pregnant, I was sick of waddling around with a 40-inch belly, and he was sick of hearing me complain about how the baby bruised the inside of my ribs and smashed my internal organs flat with her kicking. But still, that was no reason for him to out me to the Lamaze instructor, Martha, 
a fidgety red-headed nurse in her mid-thirties with plastic glasses and three chins, who was also a rabid fan of breastfeeding. Does anyone have questions? She'd ask the eight couples assembled around the long Formica top table with the breast is best signs hovering over us. I wanted to stab Greg in the neck when he raised his hand. Um, my wife drinks a six-pack of Coke a day, and now the baby has hiccups, he told everyone, ignoring my kick on his shin. And I think that all that caffeine is probably making it nervous, and all that carbonation is probably giving it gas. He had a point, but I wasn't about to admit this in front of Martha or the other couples, all of whom were at least ten years older than me and whom I'd overheard gossiping about me smoking. I was a little ashamed that they'd peg me as trailer trash, but I quietly judged them, too, and their eagerness to join the club of dull moms whose conversations revolved around the feeding, sleeping, and pooing habits of their kids. I was only 22 by then, and I'd already decided that I wasn't going to change anything about myself just because I was about to be a mother and that I would never, ever use the phrase going down to refer to my kid's nap rather than my husband's activity around my vagina. You jerk, I snarled, but Greg pretended not to hear. How dare he complain about me when he's out snorting coke with the Hells Angels? All of Martha's chins began to wobble as she nodded at me. You should give up colon now, she said. You certainly won't want that in your system when you're breastfeeding. I was debating whether or not to ask Martha if that would be better or worse than the kid getting a contact buzz from its dad's rampant weed smoking when Greg popped in with, well, she's not breastfeeding. She wants to wear a bikini this summer, and she's afraid it'll ruin her tits. Martha began zipping and unzipping her sweater as the other couples collectively swiveled. I can't believe you don't realize how much more nutritious mother's milk is for the baby than, she paused for emphasis, canned formula. She eats Doritos for breakfast, Greg continued, glaring at me, his dark eyes narrowing. I don't think that's so healthy for the baby. A nebbishy henpecked dad-to-be from the other end of the table started waving his hand in the air. And she smokes, he yelled. Martha made eye contact with everyone in the group except for me. Well, maybe, she said. In this case, formula might be a better choice. It was, I am sure, the first and last time she ever made that statement. So... I was going to get to keep my tits. But as Martha moved on to the next question, I saw the other parents sneaking sidelong glances at me, and I knew that they already felt sorry for my kid. I wondered, a week after Bebop was born, what Martha and those other couples would say if they'd seen me almost drop her on her head at three in the morning when I fell asleep on the couch while feeding her a bottle of, yes, formula. And I thought about them again and how they'd judge me the night that my husband and I split up. Greg had just gotten home from Mexico, where he'd brought back something like 10 kilograms of heroin, most of which was shoved into our freezer. He'd smoked a joint while I unpacked his suitcase, and we'd gone to bed at 10, but I'd had to get up at midnight with Bebop, who was nine months old by then and teething. I was crabby because it was my mother's birthday, and I'd been too stubborn to call her, and I was exhausted because while Greg enjoyed playing with Bebop and never lost his temper with her— he was the kind of dad who passed her right back to me as soon as she got fussy. I gave her a teething biscuit to gnaw in, but she just kept whining, so I finally rubbed some Jack Daniels onto her gums, poured a few shots for myself, and brought her into bed with us. 
I passed out and didn't feel her climbing up onto my back like a little possum, where she fell asleep too. Everything was fine until I rolled over, and Bebop flew off my back, screaming through the air till she hit the wood floor. She was fine, it turned out, as she always was, despite me. But Greg, who wasn't happy about being woken up, started yelling. I'm afraid to leave the house half the time, he said, stomping in his boxer shorts to the bathroom for a glass of water, because I never know what will happen to my kid if I'm not there to watch you. I cuddled Bebop into my chest and kissed her sore head. You think I'm a bad mother? Look, even your own mother thinks you could use some help. I jumped off the bed. You talk to my mother behind my back? She only wants to help, he said quietly, running his hands through his short, spiked hair. You don't help me, I yelled. I'm out trying to make money, he said, and I never wanted kids, and you're the mother. It's your responsibility, not mine. That did it. You know what, I started. I want a divorce. I stomped into Bebop's room to put her in her crib, and it broke my heart when I realized that she was safer alone in her own bed than she was with me. He slept on the couch that night, and when I got home from work the next day, his clothes were gone. He called a few days later to give me his new phone number, but by then, I'd gone out and gotten a second job. He said that he missed Bebop, but that he couldn't take her with him since he was always leaving town for work. I didn't answer the phone for a week, afraid that if I picked up, it would be my mom or Greg. I was trying to prove that I didn't need anyone's help, but I realized that snowy night on the way to the laundromat, even before I ran out of gas, but around the time I discovered I'd forgotten Bebop's bottle, that I was failing. The wind was still blowing sideways at 30 miles per hour, and I could feel through the back of my coat and the scarf I'd wrapped around my face that the temperature had plunged below zero. But the snow, at least, was starting to let up. I made it to the payphone without incident and managed to call 911. Then, I swallowed my pride and made a quick second phone call to my estranged husband. Fortunately, he answered on the second ring. I took a deep breath and then burst out with... I can't talk because I just discovered a murder and the killer might still be here, but I need you to pick up Bebop and me at the Clark gas station at Auburn and Kilburn right now. I heard an exasperated sigh. Christ, Julia, what the fuck is wrong with you? I wanted to slam down the phone, but I didn't have anyone else to call. Can you please just come? I pleaded. The car's out of gas and the police are on the way, but I don't want to walk home with the baby in this blizzard. My kid had commenced to howling, and the only food options at the gas station involved a couple of vending machines, one for cups of pop and coffee, the other for snacks. Bebop didn't have too many teeth yet, so true to my white trash roots, I bought her a hostess Twinkie for dinner, which at least seemed less likely to choke her than a candy bar or chips. She was contentedly gumming her Twinkie when a dozen squad cars careened into the parking lot, sirens blaring, lights flashing, the first set of cops leaping out and running into the gas station without even slamming their doors. The detective arrived at the same time as my husband, who snatched Bebop out of my arms, his spiky hair quivering with aggravation. I snatched her back, handed him my keys, and asked him to go get her car seat so that the police I was getting to know wouldn't feel compelled to arrest us for illegally transporting the kid on my lap. The snow had stopped completely, but the temperature had plunged to 20 below zero by the time the detective finished asking me questions and Greg got back. 
Shivering, we strapped Bebop into the back seat, and she fell asleep as soon as he started the car, which is when I started crying. It was 1 a.m., and I was going to have to get up at 5 a.m. to get to work. I was also going to have to wear a dirty frozen uniform to my second job as a waitress because the laundry baskets were in the trunk of my car and the laundromats had closed while I was busy running out of gas. Do you think? I sniffled as we pulled out of the parking lot behind a patrol car that was cruising slowly down the street. That we could come home with you instead? You've had a rough night, he sympathized, his dark eyes softening as he put his arm across the back of the long bench seat. Maybe if you were around a little more, we could have worked this out, I suggested, unbuckling my seatbelt to scoot closer to him. He retracted his arm. Should have thought of this before you told me to leave. Maybe I made a mistake, I offered, and reached for his hand. He pulled off onto a residential street, and we sat and watched a few squad cars circle around the block, while Bebop snored in the back seat, snuffling through what sounded like a dream. Finally, he let go of my hand and leaned back against his window, shaking his head. This sounds like an attempt at regeneration, he said. And if we learn one thing from zombie movies and Stephen King novels, it's that regeneration is not a good thing. I know I shouldn't have done what I did next, but I was desperate. I leaned over to put my arms around him, thinking that maybe if we started kissing, I could talk him into taking us home with him, at least until I could figure out what else to do. But he saw it coming and pushed me away with both hands. Don't, he said. But he said it with some sadness. It's too late for that. And I realized then that he was through with me. But I was going home to an empty house on a freezing January night with a serial killer on the loose. And God damn it, I was only 23 years old. If I was going to get through this and not fuck up completely, I needed help. I turned to my soon-to-be ex-husband. I want my mom, I said. He nodded his head and shifted the car into gear. And as new snows started falling quietly around us, he drove me home to my mother's house. The best second story stories not only impact the audience as a whole, but can speak to individuals in a specific and transcendent way. Julia Borchett's story, Running on Empty, hit me like a two-by-four to the face. Julia first told this story, and I was pregnant. And I was just kind of starting those internal conversations with myself of, like, what is it going to mean to be a parent? Which I suppose, I mean, you know, in, in the same way that, like, when you're really hungry, all you can see is bagels. Um, when you're pregnant, all you can see is little kids and parents and how are their parents doing. And I have asked her often, um, what is the thing that I did when you were growing up that will cause you to like end up on, you know, um, Maury to be able to stand back and look at what it's like to be in a Lamaze class and have everyone else be 10 years older than you and looking at you knowing you're too young. She's having a really difficult time keeping it together. And and I think that sentence right there, she's having a really difficult time keeping it together, can probably apply to every mother I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, 
And for the love of God, that's something we all need to hear. We, you need to hear that you are not by yourself in this. So it really was about um, how everything is starting to, how like all the things that I was trying were just not working. And so I needed to reach out and ask for help. People shouldn't have to be pushed so hard to the limit. We shouldn't have to hit rock bottom before we know that it's okay to ask. Uh, so for me, the kind of what it's about is a is an incredibly necessary thing. Our final story of the podcast comes from C.P. Chang. C.P. is a Second Story company member. A longtime veteran, he's been telling stories with the company for over six years. Reading his story from the anthology titled Tribes, this is C.P. Chang. According to the influential, highly respected, and dare I say, groundbreaking blog, StuffWhitePeopleLike.com, Multiracial, multicultural couples are in. So my black girlfriend Jess and I, a Chinese man, are theoretically hot. Jess is hot by herself. She has this thousand-watt smile that brightens a bad day. She's funny, kind, a brilliant writer, and always has intriguing things to say about art and film and books and race and culture. In fact, talking about race and culture is how we met. I saw her at a reading when she spoke about being overseas in southwest England, where she was the only black woman for miles around, surrounded by people who spoke the same language as hers, and yet immediately saw her as a stranger. I said to myself, I've got to meet this woman. She gets exactly where I'm coming from, even though I'm not exactly a black woman in England. All of this makes it ironic that we've been fighting about race and culture. Take this past December. Jess and I had been dating for about a year and a half, and we had moved in together in October, but this was the first Christmas we had spent together. We went to Danville, Illinois, to spend the holiday with Jess's grandmother and her extended family. Danville, if you haven't been there, is this flat, small city, bracketed by a thin river and train tracks, with dozens of mom-and-pop stores. It's the kind of town where smokestacks and pickup trucks are the most common sights. There were 16 of us invited to Christmas dinner, and Jess's grandmother only has this little ranch house that's just enough for her and her dog. Jess's extended family was eager to meet me, the first guy she's ever brought home for the holidays. I had already met her parents, and while they were perfectly nice to me, I knew that I, as the man living in sin with their daughter, had some work cut out for me. I hoped to get in good with the extended family. As soon as I got through the door, Uncle Derek hitched up his pants, hoisted himself off the recliner, and gave me the two-handed handshake. You know, the one that says, everything is cool, but I'm the uncle you gotta answer to. Uncle David, short and stocky, smiled as he sat me down for a friendly Intera chat. And a cousin who played linebacker for the Fighting Illini hugged me, nearly crushing my ribs, before telling me that I'd better be taking care of Jess. I knew these men were just being protective of Jess, their eldest niece or female cousin, but I felt like I was starting off in a deep hole. Jess's grandmother, on the other hand, was giddy over meeting me. Within an hour of my arrival, she offered to lend me her engagement ring. (laughs) Jess had been afraid that her grandmother would say something ignorant, like asking me if I ate dogs. 
I would have cracked up if she'd asked that. I would have answered, Dogs? No, it's best to get them when they're still puppies. Jess would have killed me. Now, to put this in context, I should tell you that whenever I talk to Jess about Chinese culture, I lie. She once asked me, How come you never wear your shoes in the apartment? And I told her, It's a Chinese thing. Another time she said to me, Honey, you are crazy for your pork chops, aren't you? It's true. I love my pork chops and all things pork. Pork loins, breakfast sausage, bacon, pulled pork, barbecued pork ribs, bacon-wrapped pork chops, bacon-wrapped bacon. And I told her, it's a Chinese thing. When I was home alone one day, watching some girl-on-girl action on the internet, she came home early and almost caught me. I had to slam shut my laptop. She asked if I was watching porn, and I told her, For God's sakes, woman, it's a Chinese thing. Jess used to think our racial joking was funny, but it got less funny when she met my parents. And suddenly, being able to distinguish my bullshit from the real thing was the difference between her getting along with my folks and totally insulting them by accident. Jess had been on me with questions. What's the difference between Chinese and Taiwanese? How does feng shui work? Chinese people don't really eat dogs, do they? It drives me crazy, because for all my talk about it's a Chinese thing, I don't know crap. Just because my skin is Chinese doesn't mean I know all about it. Yes, I was born and raised in a Chinese family, but I grew up in a suburb near Columbus, Ohio, a place not exactly known for its bustling Chinatown or its melting pot of ethnicities. Until I was an adult, I didn't have any Chinese friends. I had a few black friends and some Jewish friends and a good friend from India, but I didn't have any more cross-cultural experiences than your average white person. For most of my life, I went around trying to pass for white and succeeding because even though I'm Chinese, I sound totally white. Even with my Chinese name, I went by Chip when I bust tables at Damon's as a teenager. And I've gone by my initials, CP, for so long that I don't even answer to my Chinese name anymore. As long as we're all being polite, I can pass for white, or so I think. But when I walk into a dive bar in Indiana, I feel like I can hear all the locals muttering, Nah, fella, you ain't white. A few years ago, I started shooting pool at a bar in Lincoln Park. One of those places where you put your name on a chalkboard to get next on the pool table, and if you win, you keep the table until you get knocked off. These three other Chinese guys were always there, and this is one of those Lincoln Park bars where the only people of color there worked in the back. So one day, I walked over to these three other guys, looked at them, looked at all the other white people, and said, Dudes, we gotta be over quota here. One of us Chinamen is gonna have to leave. We all cracked up, and after that we became friends. We started going to bars and restaurants together, and heading down to Chinatown for Chinese food. And it blew my mind that I could actually go to Chinatown with other people, without feeling like I was a tour guide on a field trip showing the tourists all the exotic sights. Hanging out with these guys defined being Chinese to me. My grandfather would roll over in his grave to hear me say, Screw the 5,000 years of history. Being Chinese means I've got friends that I can call chinks. 
But yeah, it meant that I had a group of friends that I belonged to. For all the things we learn from different people, it's also really comfortable to hang out with people who are like you. Other artists and writers, or other gay men, or other people from the South, other folks in the service industry, other people like you. Not because you dislike people who are different, but you don't have to explain as much or be on your guard. You're comfortable in your own skin, literally. These guys I met shared the same problems and laughed at the same jokes. They were my tribe. But for all that Jess wants to know about Chinese culture, real Chinese culture, I tell her, I got nothing. And it drives her crazy because she worries that she'll never really belong to my family. The Christmas dinner menu in Danville included turkey, greens with pork, mac and cheese with bacon bits in it, and 10 pounds of chitlins. Chitlins are pig intestines, if you didn't know. I told Jess's grandmother that the Chinese have a similar dish, but I never had real chitlins. When they're cooking, they smell pungent, but they taste good. Jess says they smell like ass. She doesn't eat chitlins. She doesn't eat pork or beef or turkey or any meat at all. Yes, at this feast of meat that her family was preparing, Jess was the one vegetarian in the whole extended family. On our way to dinner, we had to stop by Whole Foods to pick up a tofurkey meal just so she'd have something to eat. Tofurkey, if you didn't know, is turkey, except it's made from tofu. It's not bad. Just needs more bacon on it. Though her parents know that Jess is a vegetarian, they haven't gotten used to the idea of their daughter, whom they raised on R&B music and barbecue, growing up to be a vegetarian who practices yoga and prefers the Dave Matthews Band over Kanye West. As the meal was just about ready, it was going to be buffet-style on the kitchen counter, Jess and her mother were in the kitchen. Jess's mom wore her hair in tight braids for the occasion and had on a Christmas sweater set. Jess wanted to make sure her tofurkey wouldn't disappear, so she whispered to her mom, Don't draw any attention to my food, but can you make sure that no one eats any of it? Jess's mom responded by bellowing out to everyone, Okay, don't anybody touch any of Jess's weirdo food. Jess stomped out of the kitchen, and when I caught up to her, she growled at me. It's always like this. She glared through the wall towards her mom and muttered, Just deal with it already. Then it turned out that her grandmother's house didn't have quite enough chairs for everyone. And after Jess's dad asked us gently if we could wait a while, we stood around in the kitchen, watching the uncles and aunts and cousins and her grandmother and her parents have Christmas dinner, until some of her cousins finished their meals and let us have their chairs. The two of us had dinner by ourselves at a small kitchen table, without the rest of the family. After dinner, I was in the living room with Jess and a few of the uncles and cousins. Uncle Derek was quizzing Cousin Brian about living on the south side of Chicago. Brian said, Come on up for a visit. When you get downstairs from me, call, and I'll come get you. Derek asked, Call you? Why? Do I need to be scared? Brian shrugged, and Derek leaned in for the joke. What? Are there black people where you live? He pretended to be on the phone, his voice low and husky and frightened. Brian, come get me. I see black people on the street. Everyone in the room cracked up. 
Everyone but me. Could I laugh without seeming racist? Could I not laugh without seeming racist? I smiled with closed lips, not even sure myself whether I was forcing it or not. I was seated on the arm of the couch where Jess sat, and so it was easier for me to slip off to the kitchen to see if anyone needed help cleaning up. It was like another reminder. Nah, motherfucker, you ain't black either. I can't fake Chinese, can't pass as white, and can't find a home in black either. What the hell was I supposed to do? Jess and I left for home the next day. The highway was still slushy from the snowstorm that had hit just before the holiday, and we saw dozens of cars and trucks that had been abandoned by the side of the road. In the car, when Jess asked me, just to make conversation, what Chinese weddings were like, I lost my shit. I couldn't keep on lying or joking around or making up stories. I don't know, I shouted at her. I don't know about Chinese weddings. I don't know about shit. Jess was driving, and her voice was low as she asked, What did I say? I sighed and stared out the window. I don't know. Sometimes I think that maybe your next boyfriend will be the right one. That he'll be black and Christian and successful. A man who knows at least where he came from. She bit her lip hard and refused to look at me. I don't want a next boyfriend. We were on I-57 halfway between Champaign-Urbana and Chicago. It's like any interstate where you see McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and the lowest common denominator for what it means to be an American. For all we try to do to bridge the gap between races and cultures, ultimately, maybe the only thing everyone has in common is french fries. We drove in silence. I thought about how the people who do internet dating had the right idea. Put all your baggage online and let the computers sort it out. Why date someone you meet in a bar and maybe fall in love only to find out that you can't get over your differences? When Jess and I got back to Chicago, we unpacked our things and collapsed into bed. Our bedroom walls are covered with artwork, paintings and sketches that either our friends or we made. It's a tribute to what we hope to be as artists or as friends of artists. It seemed like such a pipe dream as I lay there. I stared at the ceiling in the dark. I could tell by her breathing she hadn't fallen asleep. I, I broke the silence. I, I know you don't wish I were black, but I just feel like such an outsider with your family. She turned, shifting so her outside leg wrapped over my thighs, and she hugged me. Her face nestled into my neck as she murmured, if you're on the outside, then that's where I want to be, too. Hell, I'm the black sheep in my own family. She rolled over onto her back and sighed. I knew she was thinking about her mother. In the dark of our bedroom, I asked her, What does a black sheep sound like? She thought about it for a second, and then she said, Bah, nigga. We laughed, and afterwards she said, Maybe we can make our own tribe. Yeah, I'd like that. With that, we fell asleep, holding hands throughout the night.
I sat with CP in his South Loop apartment and talked about the development process for his story. I didn't come with pages and pages. What I came with was this emotional state of, Megan, this is a really big story. I don't even know where to start, okay? This, for me, is one of those stories that, that kind of really challenged me to, to have to be a more thoughtful person on this planet, I, I think. We're still working through issues on a day-to-day basis. This, it's, it's always just a continuous thing in America, dealing with uh, race relations and and being in an interracial relationship and being that relationship out in the world as well. So it's something we're trying to navigate even today. Finding the place where you fit, where you fit in a relationship, where you fit um, with someone's families, where you fit into a culture, where you fit into a community, I I think is a really profound question. I Um, think that's true. I think that um, a lot of what Second Story helps us do is figure out who we are in the world and what that means. I can say with complete honesty that for me, Second Story has had exactly that effect. It's where I've found my place, where I fit in this world. Briefly knocked unconscious by a low-flying duck gives an entire new audience of readers an opportunity to find their home in Second Story as well. We hope you take advantage of it. For more information on Second Story, or on our anthology titled Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck, please visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. You can purchase the anthology on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, from the publisher Elephant Rock Books, or directly through the Second Story website. If this podcast gives you ideas for your own Second Story, we'd love to hear them. You can join us on New Year's Eve for our second story New Year's Bash at Morseland Cafe in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. Second Story podcasts are brought to you by the City Arts Program, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Works Fund. (laughs) Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Sherry... This Second Story podcast has been brought to you by Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Bobby Bistriski, Megan Steelstra, C.P. Chang, Andrew Riley, the Second Story Publishing Committee, Mikhail Fixel, Danielle Izel, Sherry Pentamone, Eric Hazen, and Ozzy Totten. I'm Ozzy Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening.